0: Listen to Sharp Scratch, episode 56, Imposter Syndrome. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we bring together medical students, junior doctors and expert guests to discuss all the things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but you might not get taught at medical school. I'm Nikki, I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a fourth year medical student at the University of Manchester. And I'm excited to be joined today by my good friends, Clara and Izzy. Izzy, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, hi, I'm Izzy, and I am a fourth year medical student at the University of
0: Nottingham. Great to have you with us today, Izzy and Clara.
1: Hi, uh, I'm
2: Clara Monroe. I'm a German garage in the northeast of England.
0: Great to have you with us as well, Clara. Thank you for having me. Um, we are delighted to be joined today by our expert guest, Dr. Valerie Young. Valerie, do you mind introducing yourself to us?
3: No, oh, not at all. My name
0: is Valerie Young. I'm from the US and I am an internationally recognized expert on imposter syndrome. So excited that you could join us today. I guess it's the joys of virtual recordings. Um, Okay, so today's episode is all about imposter syndrome and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that our guest today is truly an expert and ask Valerie to kick us off with defining what imposter syndrome actually is. Sure, that's a great place
3: to start because there's a lot of misconceptions I think about what it is and what it isn't. Let me tell you what it's not first, it's not a fancy term for low self-esteem. You know, think of self-esteem as this kind of global sense we have about ourselves, but imposter feelings are very specific to achievement arenas, work, school, business, career. You don't feel like an imposter when you're walking your dog or putting, you know, Petro in the car. Um, imposter syndrome, it's actually the, the more accurate term is imposter phenomenon, because it's not really a medically diagnosable or psych- psych- psychologically diagnosable, phen- you know, illness of any sort. Uh, and it was a coined the term was coined in 1998, uh, 1978 Sorry, by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes, two psychologists. And what they found is that despite evidence of our abilities or accomplishments, a lot of perfectly capable, competent, intelligent people feel like they have somehow fooled other people. They, they externalize their accomplishments. They chalk them up to luck or timing or computer error, or, or, or they just like me. Uh, and there's this persistent sense that they're going to be found out.
0: Thank you. And how do you think that this relates to our audience who are medical students or doctors? Well,
3: interestingly, there are certain uh, careers and fields that are more susceptible to imposter syndrome and STEM generally and medicine specifically is is one of them uh, for a few reasons. One, when you're in school, regardless of what you're studying. You know, situationally, you're at a more kind of at-risk group, if you will, because your knowledge and intellect is literally being tested day in and day out when you're in school. So, students, and especially you know, graduate students, medical students, you know, who, who are in advanced uh, educational areas are, as a group, much more likely to feel like imposters than than kind of the general public. And then you layer on medicine, right, which is very obviously information-dense and rapidly changing uh, to the point that no human could ever possibly keep up with everything. But, of course, you feel like you should be able to. And then you layer on to that uh, medical culture, which in and of itself, there are certain organizational cultures that can fuel self-doubt. So you put the three together and it's a recipe for feeling like an imposter.
0: You said some really interesting things there that I really want to pick apart. But first of all, I wanted to ask Izzy, did any of the things that Valerie said ring true for you there in your um, career so far?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I'm about to, exams pending, (laughs) move on to uh, fifth year. So my final year of medicine. And I was talking to one of our clinical teaching fellows yesterday and I was saying to her, I said, Rosie, I, I don't, I don't know how I've got this far. I feel like, I think Valerie just said, oh, as if you fooled someone into getting as far as you have. And I said, surely I'm going to trip up soon. People will see me like, oh yeah, that, that, like, that's where you stumbled. And I've, I'm going to meet my tipping point at some point soon. And people will see me for not being good enough. And I think... I think I've spoken before on this this podcast about my chronic feelings of not being good enough, and I think that very much ties into my feeling of imposter syndrome, especially with, I mean, our cohort was very much affected by COVID, and having this sense of really missing out on clinical skills mm. learning, and so I'm think I, my 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 one thing is I often think I'm about to go into final year and i've never done a cannula on a patient yet the people in the year below me are like just doing it like no problem like and i and i'm on the wards and i'm thinking wait what like that, that oh, huh? <laughs> and and that doesn't help i don't think but you know trying to think oh they're in the they're in a different boat and then i said to rosie yeah, and i'm on the titanic um <laughs> but but i think you get this feeling of I will trip up soon. People see me for who I really am, mm. but, and because that is in my head. I, you know, you feel like, how did I get here? Because it feels like, especially when it feels like everything sped by so quickly, mm. that doesn't help. <laughs> I think
2: you touched on something really interesting there that I wanted to um, pick Valerie's brains about a bit. It's like, when do you know the difference between when you do genuinely lack the experience and shouldn't be doing something because you're not trained enough to do it? Or when you are, when you have imposter's phenomenon or imposter syndrome.
3: Yeah, and that's a really good question. I just want to say something really quickly to to Izzy is that the closest, as I got closer to becoming Dr. Valerie Young, I had recurring dreams that they looked in my records and they found out I had to go back to first grade, that I had (laughs) had forgotten something and I had to go back and start over, which was very scary. But I also felt kind of cocky because I knew how to read and write anyway. So I figured I was ahead of my peers, right, the other six-year-olds. I'll probably start doing that now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, how do you know the difference? I think it's it's a wonderful um, it's a wonderful question, and it's a, and it's a really important question. I think the more you can recognize that, indeed, you are in this incredibly yeah. steep learning curve. You you've accomplished uh, the b- big first step in that, but but it's it's just beginning. You know that now there's all the practical aspects of of going into the medical profession. So, there are things you don't know. You know, And so to recognize what is the Clint Eastwood, you know, uh, a man's got to know his limitations, right? You know, I think uh, women have to know our limitations, uh, <laughs> medical students, and that we're all learning and growing. And so the more you can normalize this sense of, boy, I feel really off base here, right? I really don't feel confident here. And why would I feel confident here? I don't have the experience yet to feel full on confident, then you can normalize those those feelings of being uncertain at this stage in your career
1: I like that way of looking at it like, Why would I feel confident here because I haven't had the training that I need yet like I haven't actually had the ability to the time and the ability that other people have had I really like that
0: I have also wanted to pick apart something else that Valerie said earlier when she was speaking about medicine in particular in terms of the sort of institutional culture that we're in. And Clara, how prevalent has that been for you in sort of the sense of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon throughout your career or for those around you?
2: I think it's been very different depending on what environment I'm in. And for me, and this is obviously very personal experience, um, it's dependent on how many people sort of look and behave and are like me uh, in whatever organisation I work for. Um so I think times where I've experienced particularly uh, acute imposter's phenomenon have been where I'm the only female or where I, um I don't know, I'm the only person from, like, my background or I'm the only person with a similar set of interests. I think that's where I've really started to think, oh, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. All these other people seem so confident about it. Um... Whereas, interestingly, when I've worked in departments and done exactly the same job, but have been surrounded by many people who are much more like me, I haven't felt that same sense of imposter syndrome. So I think, I mean, surgery obviously has its own culture, um, and that culture is probably a particular microcosm within medicine, uh, where certain things are obviously uh, more heightened than others. But I do think that when, uh, and I'd be interested in... uh, your opinion on this, Valerie, is, you know, why is it that imposter syndrome is so much more pronounced when you don't have people that are like you around you?
3: Uh, yeah, and, and you, you really hit it there. You know, there, there's uh, how, people often say, you know, where does this come from? And my frame is per- the perfectly good reasons you might feel like a fraud. You know, and, and one of them is just exactly what you said. You know, when, when you walk into a room or you choose a field or an area of medicine in this case, uh, you walk onto the executive level in an organization, the more people who look like you, the more confident you feel. Mm-hmm. The more people who sound like you, the more confident you feel. If you... Um, If you're uh, studying or working in a a country where, uh, in this case, English is not your first language, you're more vulnerable. I've spoken to over 100 universities around the world, including Oxford and in Europe. um, And I can tell you the largest group of people to come are always the international students, Mm. which makes sense, right? Because they've got the same pressures you all have that everyone has, but they're doing it in another culture and often in another language as well. Uh, But when there's not or maybe you have a strong working class accent or kind of a regional accent that people deemed, you know, stereotypically is not as intelligent. Mm -hmm. So uh, in in those cases like that, you know, you you consciously or unconsciously know that you're on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence or, or abilities if you're one of the few, let's say, women or racial minorities, uh, or you're the youngest person, or you're the first generation in your family to go to university, have a professional job, you're going to be more vulnerable, especially if you are um, the first in a role or at a level, uh, or the only one. Uh, in my talks, I, I took a picture. I was speaking in, in Toronto, and on the front page of the Globe and Mail, the newspaper there, it said, Say hello to University of Toronto's only black first year medical student. And in all of those situations there, there's a lot of pressure to represent mm. your entire group mm. Mm. you know and again this is true for in, in any group for whom there are stereotypes so you know how, you know have you ever felt uh underestimated because you were the youngest person you know if <laughs> right that, that can play yeah. a role as well uh, or maybe for some folks it could be the oldest person I asked that question to Facebook employees how many of you have felt the oldest and the thirty year olds raised their hand so It's all relative. So Certainly there is that larger (laughs) intersection between diversity and inclusion and imposter syndrome. So you're absolutely right. A sense of belonging fosters confidence.
2: That's so interesting. What do you think is like, how much do you think the responsibility is on the individual to sort of, I don't know, cure their imposter syndrome to get over their imposter syndrome? And how much of that do you think is on the organization to be more representative more diverse I mean I I feel like in to put my last statement in um context I feel incredibly privileged in that I am white I am born and uh, educated in the UK and so while I might be female in a male-dominated environment I still am incredibly privileged but I would always want to know what we should be doing more to eliminate that imposters phenomenon for other people who might not you know might be from different
3: backgrounds sure and i think it's always a combination as you said you know we, we need to be working on our how we respond to things and how we um how we look at the, the environment and how we look at uh, how we're measuring our competence the voice, the the conversation we're having in our head about our competence, we need to focus on that, but to your point, the more organizations become aware of uh, imposter syndrome and how it affects different populations, you know I, you don't need to feel like an imposter in an organization to To need to understand it. If somebody is managing or leading or mentoring or training or teaching or even parenting other people, they do need to understand it because there are consequences not just for individual employees or students, but also for the organization. So the more they can understand that this is not just an interesting self-help topic, that there are costs. Uh, I think that people's self-interest kicks in and they realize, oh, I really do need to understand
0: this so I can help make a difference. Caught up with our sharp scratch panellist Declan to hear his thoughts on imposter syndrome and I think they lead on quite well. So I'm just going to play those in here now.
4: Hi, Nikki. So, in terms of my thoughts about imposter syndrome at medical school, I think they really stem from my background. Um, you know, coming from a state school, being a white male from a council estate, and um, there was a real sort of insecurity when I first got into medicine. Um, I actually remember one of the other students being like, if Declan can pass, anyone can pass, um, which, you know, really led to a feeling of inadequacy, um, especially when you learn what other people's parents and stuff do and the the schools other people went to and the support that people received. Um, I think also the culture in medical school doesn't really help, I felt quite a lot of competition um, and it was always kind of difficult to know how much work other people were doing and how to, you know, gauge where you are in relation to your peers. Um, at our medical school as well, we didn't really have a specific curriculum. It was very much, you know, asking what's on the exams, and it's well, you know, anything could be on the exams in this um, subject area, um, and I think again that kind of uncertainty leads people to attribute their success to again look, um, rather than you know their hard work, and we're very much focused on you know the look aspect rather than everything else. And then I guess more recently, I think um, the culture of the NHS and in particular kind of feedback um, really feeds into imposter syndrome as well within you know, new doctors. There's a real emphasis on you know, only focusing on negative feedback. Um, for example, you know, our ALCPs, which were required to complete every year, so after F1 and F2, um, the maximum praise that you can get on a team assessment of your behaviour is no concerns. Um, and on the wards and in the different departments, I think there's a real culture from other healthcare professionals to focus on negative feedback rather than providing any positive feedback. I think that really gives us a skewed view in terms of um, you know how competent we are as doctors. Um, and I think that when there's a real focus on that negative feedback, um, often when we do achieve something. Um, You know, we attribute that more to luck because we've received so much more negative or neutral feedback rather than positive feedback.
0: Okay, so I just want to pick up on um, a couple of things that Declan said there, the first of which being the culture of the competitiveness of medicine. And Valerie, I know you said that you've spoken at a lot of medical schools and you've spoken to lots of physicians and things in the US before. Is this something that you've picked up on before and had conversations about before?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, generally speaking, uh, even apart from medicine, organisational culture can fuel self-doubt. The reason why... um, imposter syndrome is rampant at universities and again not just medical universities but universities general um, is because you know you're uh, a lot of it has to do with the the, the, the grueling process of tenure uh, you're surrounded by very highly educated people somebody said to me at a university recently she said this is crazy I have a PhD I shouldn't feel like an imposter I said no you feel like an imposter because you have a PhD uh, you know, suddenly people look at you a certain way. They have these kind of expectations of you. I was speaking at Stanford University, and all it said on my slide was, y- you, you're, you're in an organizational culture that fuels self-doubt. A young man raised his hand. He said, what if you're in a culture where there's a lot of shaming? I said, are you in medicine? He said, yes. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> to, to that point, that you're only getting that negative um, mm. feedback, And by the way, this happens in other areas, uh, you know, for for folks in other PhD programs, you know, or or applying for grants and so on. And the margins, the reviewers, they're not writing great point, good paragraph. They're only only writing negative feedback. And so I I always try to arm people with that knowledge, like, you know, to to brace yourself because that is what you're going to get. So where can you find... You know the affirmation that you need because you're probably not going to get it there because of the culture.
0: Izzy how do you think that compares to what we might have had at school or something like that? Where do you think the shock sort of starts when you enter medical school? I
1: was talking to um, someone on Twitter yesterday about it like I'm just a really sensitive person and I need and I was told, oh, you need to go and sit in A and E for a bit and um, toughen yourself up a bit, and <laughs> just get used to getting some criticism. And I, I don't know. I feel like, yes, but also, you know, when you're thinking about you know positive psychology and every all all down that line, and there's all these different methods of feedback. Like, um, I think there's one that we used that I used when I was did a lot of coaching was. I think they call it the hamburger or the sandwich model of feedback. So you give positive, then you slip in the negative bit, and then you give another positive. So although you're you're giving that negative feedback, you're sandwiching it between two positive things, so it doesn't hit quite as hard. And, you know, they're more likely to take it away and actually work upon it. And there's always the learning from your mistakes. Like, I haven't yet forgotten to ask about immunisation since I forgot that in one unimmunized child um but i mean there is something to say for that but i think in different situations different things it is a different thing i think that's what declan was touched upon as well Mm. saying you know in the arcp feedback it's just negative 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 and it can just hit like
0: yeah really interesting (laughs) the highest one you can get is no concerns yeah Really interesting choice of words (laughs) there, isn't it?
1: Yeah, just no concerns, like, not... Like, that seems like, you know, when you get, like, the Likert scale, just, like, you know, satisfactory in the middle seems like a no-concern sort of thing. And so can you not go higher than that? Or (laughs) Uh, So that, yeah, it sounds like a good couple of years have got coming ahead. (laughs) But (laughs) Having said that, I think there is, like, one
2: positive that I could bring to that and, and I totally agree with what Declan said um that a lot of our formalized feedback is like either no concerns or negative but a lot of our feedback from patients is is often positive and for me that's something that I've found has um sort of driven me in you know maybe feeling like less like I'm an imposter because actually When I have really learnt my stuff and I've passed the exam and I've gone and spoken to a patient and I've been able to explain to them in human terms what's going on with them and I've taken the time to do that they've said, oh, thank you very much. That was really nice. That's the first person that's, you know, that's done that. And that doesn't require me to be the cleverest person in the class, but it just requires a bit of time and effort. And actually, that to me is so much more valuable than somebody filling out a form that says they have no concerns about me. Because I think for most of us, the reason we went to medical school is to, you know, help patients. I know that might sound um, a little (laughs) bit droll, but, um, you know, and if we are doing that and we're getting good feedback from them, then... that is a bit of an antidote to the formalized feedback system, which can feel mildly depressing at times. I, mean.
3: I think it's so important that you're finding places uh, where there is positive feedback. And I think if we can accept, I'm not going to get it over here, because this is how the culture is, you know, instead of feeling badly about it. I mean, it, it, it's like it is what it is, right? And this is what you signed up for, for better or worse, and this is what everybody's going through, for better or worse, where can I go, whether it's my peers or my patients, to get what I need? And I know, um, Izzy, you said, you know, it's like you have this trick scale, right? And on the trick scale, only the negative evidence counts, because we get, we could explain away the positive evidence, uh, but we need to focus uh, also on finding the positive uh, at the same time, I think it's really important if you're going to overcome—or um, I don't really focus on overcoming imposter syndrome. I focus on having kind of insight, information, and tools to, when you have a normal imposter moment, to talk yourself down faster. And and a lot of that's about reframing. And and one thing we need to reframe is constructive criticism. Mm. Um, I, I once read an article. It was editorial <coughs> by this uh, woman who was an executive coach, and ironically, she just come home from doing a talk on imposter syndrome. And someone who was there emailed her to say, you know, good talk, but I just want to let you know, you said, um, a hundred (laughs) times. And it was a 60 minute talk. And so she said, you know, she knows intellectually, she tells her her audiences that constructive criticism is a gift. But when she got it, she was crushed, she was wounded, she was angry, she was hurt. Her daughter said, how rude, I can't believe she wrote to you. And then, then the writer said, then she thought about it, and she had a different response. And I thought she was going to say gratitude. That's not what she said. She said pity. She felt sorry for this woman because she didn't know how to give feedback and that it should be solicited. I looked at it very differently. I thought she should have sent her roses. (laughs) This woman gave her a gift. If you want to be a professional speaker, not only did this person take the time to let you know that you said um, she quantified it for her a hundred <laughs> times, right? That's, that's very useful information. <laughs> so the other way to look at it is the, the folks who are evaluating you, they wouldn't even, if they didn't think you were worth even giving the, the critique, they wouldn't even bother with you. Mm-hmm. But they think that you're worth you know, giving information for you to continue to get better. And I know it doesn't always feel like a gift, Um, in the moment but the more you can try to reframe that of you know thank you so much for helping me get better.
0: We'll discuss a little bit more about imposter syndrome but that will be right after this.
5: How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients but being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of Medical Protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org.
0: So interesting actually that our panel today has actually become all women and this wasn't on purpose it was due to people's availability (laughs) Um, but when I was doing some research for this episode I read a number of times that women are disproportionately affected by imposter syndrome. Valerie why is this?
3: Well I think there's a lot of reasons you know um, I don't think we can just focus on the internal side of things you know the reality is that women as a group continued to be seen as less capable, less less competent, you know, there is that kind of unconscious bias, uh, for example. There's a, a for example, we, we imposter syndrome, often people chalk their accomplishments up to luck. Well, guess what? If you're a woman, society thinks you've been lucky as well. There were studies where they would have people performing a puzzle or a task, and then they would ask the observer, why do you think that person was successful? If the person doing the task was a male, they were more likely to say he was clever, he was resourceful. If it was a woman, they were more likely to say she lucked out, you know, she stumbled upon the conclusion. Uh, And maybe you've heard that expression, a woman has to work twice as hard and be twice as smart as a man to be considered half as good. Well, the punchline is, fortunately, that's not difficult. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I looked up the quote, I'm kind of paraphrasing. It was the first woman mayor of Ottawa, Canada in 1944. A woman has to work twice as hard, be twice as smart because they're half as good. She was partially right. There was these two Swedish immunologists who are wondering why are women getting more PhDs in the sciences, but they're not getting these prestigious grants awarded proportional to the male applicants. So they went to the Swedish Medical Council and they wanted to look at the peer review process. It took two years in a court order because they were convinced we're a meritocracy, we're gender blind. But when they pulled back the curtain, what they found shocked the overwhelmingly male scientific community. The women didn't have to be two times as good. They had to be 2.5 times as productive in their research Mm -hmm. and their publications to get the exact same score as the men. So I don't think we can dismiss the external pressures that women feel to have to be even better in a lot of um, situations as a as a contributing factor, but I also think women as a group tend to be more prone towards perfectionism. Mm. Um, and perfectionism is, you know, when I speak to physicians, it's, it's a complicated topic because I want my pilot and my doctor to be perfectionists. Thank you very much. Right? I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, so because you, you're dealing with life and death, and that's another aspect that makes the field that you're in different than other fields. Uh, but but if as women we are more prone to perfectionism, and uh, to taking uh, constructive criticism more personally, uh, then we're going to end up feeling more like imposters.
1: Yeah, I think you might if have it, seen the face the face I pulled uh, <laughs> when you said <laughs> that's about, why I was about to bring you in. <laughs> yeah, when when you said about perfectionism, I am a chronic perfectionist. I have I've learned over uh, many years to like channel it into productive perfectionism and less productive perfectionism. I mean, so I can be perfectionist when it matters. Um, so for instance, in some areas of medicine, like you need to be quite perfectionist, but in others, maybe not so much, um, for instance, I don't need to get 100% in my exam I'm sitting next week. Um, But, you know, I need to be good enough. And that's where the distinction is. Like, I think I could have probably have had a better well-being if I had had done maybe not quite as great in my GCSEs, A-levels. I probably still could have got to where I am now and maybe even done slightly better academically in the long term by... Having slightly better well-being because I have more headspace. I think that with things like imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon, I'm not the only one in my year group who feels like that. Out of my friendship circle, I'd say seven out of ten.
0: And you've just yeah. you've just reminded me, I asked um, Valerie <laughs> to define imposter syndrome, but I never actually asked how common it is or how many yeah. pe- how many of us you think, experience imposters syndrome or imposter phenomenon at some point or every day even, I guess?
3: Yeah, the statistic that is you know, most often cited is that 70% of people at one time or another. Um, there, was a study, there was a study yes. in 2017 out of the UK that found that 80% of oh. CEOs and 81% of managing directors said they sometimes feel out of their depth and that they're struggling in their role. So uh, we are the majority, which begs the question: What's up with the other thirty percent? Right? Like, what's going on with them? Right. I think some of them have Are a little, confident. Well, some of them have a whole different issue. You know, this very arrogant, uh, smartest guy in the room. Um, they don't know what they don't know. You know, they they think they know more than they really do, which has actually been documented. It's called the Dunning Kruger effect, uh, named after Professor Dunning at Cornell Uni- University. Um, so but I think that we so we, we don't want to become like them. Right. But but I think we can learn from that other percentage of people who are humble. They are genuinely humble, but they've never felt like an impostor. because truly the only difference between them and us is in, in the exact same situation where we might feel like an imposter. They are thinking different thoughts like that's it. Right. That's the only difference. So. Uh, to, to Izzy's point around perfectionism, if we can differentiate between mm. perfectionism and a healthy drive to excel, mm. you know, if if you're in medical school, you, you you clearly you have a healthy drive to excel. The difference is that perfectionists, when they fall short, they stumble, they make a mistake, no matter how small or insignificant, um, they they feel shame. The person who has a healthy drive to excel, they make, you know, a normal mistake or it's not absolutely a plus, flawless every single time. They might be disappointed, but they don't feel shame. They kind of regroup. What do they learn from it? And they're able to shake it off and move on more quickly.
2: That's so
1: interesting. I I can see myself
2: in that. And
3: keep in mind, 50% of all medical students graduate in the bottom half of their class. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) It has to be 50%, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, exactly. That's very true. What we need to recognize is that this is not all about you. It's not all about us, that everyone loses when bright people play small or drop out of medical school or, you know, hold back in in, in any way of sharing our knowledge and talents with the world. And the first time I understood that, I was a doctoral student and I was procrastinating on writing my dissertation. Right. When I was a graduate student, I had the cleanest house in Northampton, Massachusetts, because, uh, you know, you, you all understand that. So um, I did not want to write that dissertation. So I had I had like 600 pages uh, of transcribed interviews that I now had to make sense of and turn into a coherent model and dissertation. And my friend Rita wrote me a letter and said, Valerie, you have to finish because you're learning things that could help a lot of people. And that's when the light bulb went on. I was like, oh, my God, Like people are waiting for me. I have to hurry, right? How selfish am I? And it it helped me to get over myself to realize that me, whether it's procrastinating, holding back, whatever that meant, has implications for other people beyond, beyond me. Some people might find that useful, especially in the medical field, because you're going to make a difference in so many people's lives.
1: But Claire, one thing I did want to ask is, because mm. I know like a lot of people are about to start F1 what was it like starting F1? Because I can imagine that start that that triggers a lot of imposter syndrome in a lot of people because it's often a new place and suddenly you're expected to do things. And what's that like?
2: Yeah, so I think um, I was actually saying to Nikki before we started on this call that I realised yesterday that it's six years ago today that I qualified from medical school And in my head, I'm still 22. So that was, you know, it's always a shock when you realise the inexorable passage of time. Um, But I think I can still remember that, you know, that week that we have, the shadowing week, so, so clearly. And I remember being terrified. And the thing that people are always terrified of is I'm going to kill a patient. My advice is it's really, really hard to kill a patient as an F1. You have so much support and there are so many layers that you kind of have to get through. You are never just left on your own. And I think the thing to go back to, and certainly advice that I kind of took, uh, I think William Osler maybe said it, the uh, the famous uh, physician who always gets quoted. But if you just go back to first principles with most things, you know it. You've been taught it. You've been trained. They've let you qualify for very good reason. And, you know, you go back to the ABCDE and, you know, the steps and you check the guidelines and you get your Oxford handbook out and you do all of those basic things. The information is there. Just when you panic, you forget how to tap it. But you've got it. You've got it and you'll be fine. And it's really hard to kill
1: somebody. (laughs) I think I saw I think I saw on Twitter today someone say keep the air going in and out and the blood going round exactly (laughs)
5: and And if something
2: is bleeding and it doesn't stop just press on it and call for help because I was in that situation (laughs) in my second week as an F1 and it was fine and the right people came and the patient got fixed so as long as you just remember the basic stuff you'll be okay it's I think people complicate medicine a lot and it's just kind of doing the right things well and um being sensible, being pragmatic.
3: You know, Clara, what you're doing is a brilliant job of redefining competence. And and I think that's the the core reason uh, of everyone feels like an imposter. I mean, there's lots of other reasons that we mentioned, but the core reason is we have these unrealistic, unsustainable expectations for ourselves about what it means to be competent. And competent isn't knowing how to do it all yourself, how to do things quickly or easily or master things, you know, overnight. Or do things perfectly. Competence is knowing how to identify the resources it takes to get the job done. Mm. And so that resource is information. Okay, I don't have this in my head. Why would I? You know, I'm just starting out, or there's just so much in medicine, but I know where to go to find out the information. People are resources. You know, you're going to call in other people to help you. It's not a one person show, right? Here in, in medicine, uh, it's a team effort, it's a collective, and especially your, when you're in that learning mode. Um, and Izzy, I want to mention uh, as well, you're, you're absolutely right. When you hear more senior people who are further along in their career talking about their normal uh, self doubts and insecurities and imposter feelings, it's very helpful and reassuring. Uh, I spoke at MIT a few years ago to uh, graduate students, and a few weeks after I was there, they announced that day that they were going to have a, a forum with very prestigious professors at MIT talking about their very best failures and how they, uh, what they learned from them. And the room was packed, because I think people are hungry to hear from people who can talk about competence in a very normalizing kind of way. You know, We think that success is like this, when in fact success is like this. Um, if you Google Princeton Professor Failure CV, the man has his very prestigious, tenured <laughs> Princeton University CV there, but he also posted his failure CV, uh, the jobs he didn't get, the publications that rejected his, his submission, the grants he didn't get, and, and so on, because he wants people to understand it, it, it's a journey, it's a process. It's not just one big success after another. I think that acceptance of failure and, like, being more
2: comfortable with competence rather than being the best I think is probably the most important step in terms of training as a doctor and in your early years after graduation because as soon as you become comfortable with being good enough and not being the best you suddenly become a much better doctor and a much better human being and I think you know there are lots of people who are going to be well there are going to be a 2% of people probably who are the best by definition Those people, you know, who were the top two percent in medical school, you know, are they the happiest? Are they the people who have got a lovely family? Are they the nicest people to patients? You know, how are we defining what the best is? And being able to be good enough at your job and good enough at the things you think are important I think is probably the best thing that you can do in terms of training as a doctor.
0: I think that's a really important message for our listeners for today's episode. I was also thinking, um, Valerie, if any of our listeners are listening in and thinking, okay, yeah, this all rings very true for me, sort of tick, tick, tick to all the things that we've mentioned, how, what would your advice be for them to sort of manage or overcome this imposter phenomenon?
3: Uh, I would say three things. One is to normalize it, right? I think we over-psychologize this topic. Uh, And when we do that, (laughs) we make it more personal. We make it more about us. I think we need to do less personalizing and more contextualizing. So when you have a normal imposter moment to kind of hit the pause button and zoom out and get the bigger view um, and realize, well, like I'm a student, right? I'm here to learn. I'm supposed to feel stupid. Or I'm the only woman in the room. Or I'm in medicine and the organizational culture is all negative. You know, so to put it in this broader perspective so you don't make it always about you. It's more situational and talk about it. That's the other part of normalizing, is to talk about it within the organization is very important. If your organization's not talking about it, where can you find some peers who you can talk about it, your cohorts, to have these safe conversations with? Uh, I, I saw a, a, a resume, uh, sorry, a job description recently at the bottom of it. It said, imposter syndrome and the confidence gap are real. We want you to apply. So it was a great example of normalizing Amazing. it within the, the organization. Uh, The next thing is to reframe, right, to become consciously aware when you're having that imposter thought, kind of hit the pause button again and become consciously aware, what is the conversation going on in your head? And then how would somebody who is humble, but has not felt like an imposter, how would they reframe that situation differently? So you might walk into a room full of other physicians and go, Oh my God, everyone here is brilliant in a like a, an I'm not way, right? A- instead, to walk in and go, wow, everyone here is brilliant, I'm going to learn so much. Or instead of saying, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing, to say, well, I've never done this before, but I can figure it out. Or I have these other people I can talk to to help me figure it out, right? So just to kind of reframe it. And then the last thing is to kind of keep going regardless of how you feel. In other words, we, we can't wait until we feel. 100% confident, you know, nobody, nobody feels confident 24 seven. And that's the thing is we often I think confuse competence and confidence. We think if I was really competent, I'd be confident all the time. That's not true. We have moments of confidence, we have moments of fear. So especially at this phase in your career, I'm talking to you kind of Izzy, walk into these situations, giving yourself full permission to feel off base for the first three months or six, six months, and to know that that is a normal response in this situation. So change <laughs> your thoughts first, even though you don't always believe the new thoughts, then change <laughs> your behaviors to kind of keep going. Uh, and over time, you will feel more confident. I think yeah. oh, I could,
1: that's an excellent <laughs> advice.
3: Couldn't
2: agree more. And I think that, especially in medicine, if you conflate confidence with competence, And you think, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll just, you know, fake it till I make it. it." That's so dangerous. So do not do that. It's really bad. Lots of people try, but um, yeah, it's competent people are not always confident. Likewise, uh, vice versa.
0: Yeah, thank you, Valerie. That's really excellent advice. I think I'll definitely be taking that on board when I go back into placement in September after 18 months away from being on placements. <laughs> I think I'll really need that. Well, well, if I think I could just, for a minute, if
3: I could just go back to the question about women feeling more confident. Um,
0: yes, of course. I,
3: I show a, a graph chart in my talks from this big consulting company. They uh, did a survey of over 10,000 people, and it shows that in the mid-20s and the mid-30s, women's confidence is lower than men's. It's lower, it comes up a little bit, but still lower than men's. It evens out in the 40s and 50s, and by 61, women are like, screw it, they're much more confident, like, I don't care anymore. (laughs) But that's a long time to have to wait to feel confident, because those early, mid-20s, mid-30s, those are early, I mean, very important, pivotal career building, you know, platform building kind of years. And I always tell people, I think women are running around trying to get more and more competent, more skilled, more training. And let me be clear, when you're in medicine, please get more skilled and more training. <laughs> um, but I think we focus a lot on becoming more and more competent when I think what a lot of us also have to focus on is both feeling more competent and, and yes, yeah, sometimes acting competent, confident, even when we don't always feel it, which is not the same as faking it till you make it. Mm. But it's knowing that sometimes you have to get up in front of a room and give a talk and do you feel confident no but you can project confidence Mm. so how do we learn to project confidence even in situations we don't fully feel it
0: actually talking about um women and imposter syndrome clara there was a really interesting article that you sent me a couple of months ago called stop telling women that they have imposter syndrome did you want to mention this i
2: did but i didn't want to step on your toes in case you had it on your agenda um i i love that article i think it completely reframed i think um just as valerie said we really pathologize imposter syndrome uh and in that article they say the reason we should stop calling it syndrome is because it pertains to sort of relates to women female hysteria which is often like a diagnosis that um historically was something you know for genuine female complaints um so I think one of the things that I got out of that article was that um it can be used to sort of blame women for not being as successful oh well she's not as good as that because she just got really bad imposter syndrome and that's kind of her problem whereas actually some of it is about the systemic um about systemic sexism racism issues with social inequality and and you know We need to become better at being open about that and making people feel comfortable in those scenarios rather than labelling them with imposter syndrome uh, and using that as the reason why they haven't achieved what they could have achieved. Um, So, yeah, I don't know if there's some way of linking that article, but I think it's a, a good read.
0: Yeah, I'll pop the um, link in the description as well as some links to some of Valerie's um, work as well. Can I comment on the article because I'm,
3: I'm very mm. f- familiar with it as well, and that's also becoming a, a new theme. There was something on uh, National Public Radio, which is kind of like our BBC, um, about saying there's no basically there's no such thing as imposter syndrome. It's just racism and sexism. Mm. I I think that they're absolutely right in that. If you're not talking about the intersection between diversity and inclusion and, and stereotypes and not having that sense of belonging what all, and all of that, if you're not having that conversation when you're talking about imposter syndrome, you're uh, being negligent because that mm-hmm. is, that is, that's there and that's real. So they are absolutely right in that regard. But it doesn't take into consideration that, again, students are more susceptible as a group. Yeah. Uh, uh, organizational culture. The only study that I'm aware of where a higher percentage of men than women identified with imposter syndrome was a study conducted with college professors, which mm-hmm. I think goes directly to some of the aspects of the academy that does fuel imposter syndrome people in creative fields are more likely to feel like imposters. And that's why you see people like Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and uh, Maya Angelou, right? People who are writers and actors uh, um, and artists are more vulnerable because they're being judged by subjective standards, by people Mm -hmm. whose job title is professional critic. (laughs) Um, So, and and I can guarantee you, if I was in a a live audience right now um, of medical students, half of them would be men. Who would come mm. to hear hear the talk? So, I also think that there is this myth of the ever confident male. Yeah. And yeah. I find men today are much more likely and more willing to talk about their vulnerabilities, uh, and to share those than would have been true a, a number of decades um, ago. Mm. So they are right in that regard, but there's more going on than than just the diversity and construct. Mm.
0: That's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe on Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks' time you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media with BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch. I'd love to hear more about your ideas of what you think we should cover later on in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps other med students find the show. But until then, bye from us.
3: Bye.